AMU. American Military University is proud to present In Public Safety Matters. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Leishan Kranick. Today, we're going to talk about the mental health concerns among correctional officers and staff, something that is often not recognized and not taken seriously enough. I'm joined today by Dr. Michael Pataro, who is an associate professor of criminal justice at American Military University. Dr. Pataro is a criminal justice veteran, highly experienced in working with criminal offenders. Before pursuing a career in higher education, Dr. Pataro worked in corrections administration. He also served as the executive director of an outpatient drug and alcohol facility and as an executive director of a drug and alcohol prevention agency. Dr. Pataro has been teaching at the university level for the past 20 years while also serving internationally as an author, editor, presenter, and subject matter expert. He recently authored a textbook called Pursuing and Navigating a Career in Criminal Justice and is currently writing another textbook called Introduction to Corrections that's slated for publication in early 2023. He will also be testifying in Washington, D.C. before the Blue Ribbon Commission, a hearing on the correctional staff wellness crisis. Hi, Mike. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Leishan. This is a great honor for me. Well, you have a lot of big things coming up. Congratulations on the new book and on this commission hearing. I'm really excited to talk to you about it. Thank you. So you've been working in the criminal justice system for a pretty long time now. I was wondering if you could start off by talking about when you sort of first recognized that mental health was a serious issue among correctional staff. Can you just give us a little background? Absolutely. Honestly, I think it started when I was actually working in corrections at that time, but didn't really consider it anything further than, you know, hey, there's some issues here that we're dealing with. But at the time, I thought it was confined mostly to the facility where I worked. But once I started getting into teaching and researching, I kind of shifted away from focusing on prisoners, which is the common route that most professors take, and started shifting towards the challenges that officers, staff, and administrators contend with. And that's how this really started. One day I was sitting back and I was thinking about how many people I knew while working in corrections that had died by suicide. And it sparked my interest. And that generally led to the first article. And then the first article obviously led to many other articles. Then realizing that this wasn't just confined to Mike Patero's experience, Mike Patero's facility. This was something that was occurring internationally, not even nationally, internationally. And so I've started to tackle it a little bit more by looking into what's causing these problems. Why are we dying at such a young age? And what can be done about it? I think that's the most important part. Now that we have the research and we know why it's occurring, what can we do to prevent it or at least minimize, you know, these incidents of depression, anxiety, PTSD, and of course, suicide? Can you talk a little bit about some of the causes of some of these mental health issues? I know that we've talked about this a little bit in the past, and it always surprises me a little bit because I would assume just in thinking about correctional staff, that it would be working in an environment among offenders. But that's not always the case of what causes stress and burnout and all of the other mental health issues, right? 
Absolutely. It is quite surprising. And even when I left corrections, you know, I said the reason for me leaving had nothing to do with the prisoners or working in that type of environment, which, you know, many consider to be somewhat toxic, but it had to do more with the leadership. It had to do with the lack of supporting us. It had to do with close-ended thinking, being far from progressive at all. And it had more to do with kind of that feeling that it was an us versus them. Now, when I moved into administration, I found that a lot of my views conflicted with those that I worked with. And that was one of the reasons why I left corrections, because I felt like these individuals had kind of closed themselves off from the frontline staff, the officers themselves, even though most of them had started their careers as correctional officers and then advanced into administration. So for me, it was kind of eye-opening to realize that they didn't really care about their roots, where they came from, and they weren't including these men and women in a lot of decision-making with the policies, procedures, programmatic changes, anything occurring within the facility. And it was very frustrating, basically. And so you have a lot of officers who are feeling frustrated. They're being worked constantly with mandatory overtime. COVID did not help things whatsoever. And so you have men and women who are trying to make a career out of this, but unfortunately not getting the support of their administrators. Yeah, it just seems like such a shame because in a lot of those examples that you gave, it is in the control of a lot of administrators, it seems like. And I was wondering if you could give a little perspective on maybe some of the resources or even just awareness of mental health. Have you seen that change from when you started your career to today that at least people are talking about mental health issues among correctional staff and administration? Oh, absolutely. I mean, just in the last, I would say, decade, you've seen a tremendous change. We're now talking about it. We should have been talking about this 20, 30 years ago, but we're now talking about it. But we're not doing much as far as action plans, like creating changes by providing those resources that you mentioned, by providing an outlet for these men and women to go to, by hiring someone with a psychological or psychiatric background that has correctional experience that could help these men and women kind of navigate through some of these challenges that they're facing and to deal with it more successfully. After all, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but there's nearly 450,000 men and women who serve as correctional officers in the United States. So that's half a million people right there that have, for the most part, been somewhat neglected and ignored all these years. And that's what I and many others are trying to do right now is create that change to let their voices be heard. I'm in a great position now because I have that ability. I have that platform to talk about these issues and to spread more awareness provide more education, and hopefully get this knowledge out to others beyond just those in corrections, but out to policymakers, those that are stakeholders in this profession, anybody and anybody who just wants to listen to us. And that segues nicely into some upcoming testimony that you're about to participate in. Can you give our listeners a little overview of why you're going to Washington, D.C. And, and the topic and what you hope to talk about while you're there? Absolutely. We basically have two panels. So there's panel one that will go earlier before myself. And these are individuals who are mostly correctional officers and their firsthand experiences of dealing with stress, suicide of their colleagues, dealing with PTSD, 
the lack of support, the lack of feeling like they're empowered. And then the second panel, which I'm a part of, consists of two PhDs, an individual from Norway, and we're going to provide our insight more from, I guess you could say, the research side of it. So we all have the correctional background, but also now to kind of sway it a little bit more towards the science end of it, showing that this is a major problem. We know it's a problem, and we want to really get this out there so we can try to hopefully help these men and women. For example, the life expectancy of a correctional officer is 59 years old, whereas the national average life expectancy for an adult in the United States is 77 years old. That's a huge problem, and that's due to physical health problems, namely cardiovascular issues, poor eating habits, and unfortunately our propensity for alcohol abuse. And then from a mental health perspective, you have depression, anxiety, PTSD, and of course, suicide. And depending on the study, the research is suggesting that our suicide rate in corrections is twice that of law enforcement, which means that it's three to four times more than that of those in the general population, your average Joe citizen. And that's a huge concern. That's just not the mental wellness that we're tackling, but also the physical wellness. Wow, that is just shocking to me to know that the suicide rate is so high among correctional officers. I knew it was higher than the general public for law enforcement, but just to know it's even higher for correctional officers is just, it's very sad. It's obviously something more people need to know about. To me, it seems like one of those kind of hidden problems that not a lot of people talk about. With COVID, one of the sort of silver linings is that people are talking about mental health more because we've all had to kind of undergo this fairly traumatic social and health issue. Can you talk a little bit about what you're hoping to kind of gain from talking to this commission? Are there things that you're hoping will come from it in terms of policies or changes? Oh, absolutely. The commission is not necessarily comprised of anyone who works in corrections or even somewhat associated with corrections. These are individuals who are high-powered individuals within the nation who kind of overlap on some of the topics that we're going to talk about. And these individuals, we're hoping, can bring some movement on their end. So it's kind of looking at it as knowledge is power and strength is power in numbers, that kind of approach by getting this out there further. But I think the frustration, at least amongst the group that's testifying, including myself, is that, you know, we've done a great job of spreading awareness and education. But unfortunately, we're, stop, we're not making a movement towards actually making the change, changing the culture of corrections. And that's what I hope to gain from this experience. And that's what I hope others will gain from this experience is to show that this is not just isolated to the United States, but this is international. And that's where colleagues from Norway, New Zealand, and Australia will also be there testifying. And Norway has been very successful in addressing a lot of these issues with correctional officers and prison reform in general. So that gentleman is going to speak about their success and what's referred to as the Norwegian model. So we're hoping to kind of play well with others. I guess you could say my experience is criminal justice tends to play by itself in the sandbox. So we're trying to get others involved in this as well and see what works and what has been working, not just in the United States, but abroad, specifically Norway. So we're trying to get out more and trying to get this 
knowledge passed on so we could actually start taking some action by creating the programs, providing the resources, everything that we need for these individuals instead of constantly just talking about it. We want to actually see change. We want this to go through to writing in a form of policies, in a form of programs to help these individuals. So again, we can minimize these challenges that they're facing. Can we eliminate them altogether? Absolutely not. But we can at least minimize what's occurring and keep these young men and women from dying by suicide or dying at an early age due to some type of physical health problem. It's really fascinating. I'm glad you brought up the Norwegian approach. And I'm wondering, I don't know how much you know about that or can speak to it, but are there just really stark differences in the way that Norway approaches criminal justice in general? You mentioned a culture shift and other policy changes, but is there anything that you can point to as really something that would really help us here in the United States? Yeah, I think one of the reasons why they've been successful is that you have the buy-in of the officers, the administrators, politicians, you know, decision makers in the profession. So I think that's what it's going to take in the United States to actually move forward with this change. They've been very successful in getting everybody to agree that this is a major problem and we need to address it as a country. And that's something that's lacking in the United States is that we're not approaching this as what I would refer to as kind of like a, a public health concern because the suicide rates are incredibly high and we need to start looking at this and start addressing it. So I hope to learn myself learning as one of the testifiers even a bit more about the Norwegian model, how they've been successful, and then hopefully carry that on to you know the state and federal correctional institutions within the US to start making those changes, to start actually getting people who know about this to actually get in there and say, okay, this is what's worked in Norway, Let's try to implement the same types of policies to see if we can have the same rates of success. Definitely sounds interesting, for sure. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Dr. Pitaro. When you serve, you know that making the right decision means no excuses or compromises. American Military University was founded by a veteran with the same mindset. AMU offers quality, affordable education built around my goals, like monthly online course starts and transfer credit evaluations that evaluate my experience to help save me time and money. I chose American Military University because it works around my life and it's purpose-built for vets like you and me. To apply, go to amuonline.com veterans. And we're back talking to Dr. Mike Pitaro about mental health issues and challenges in corrections. I was wondering, just to shift gears a little bit, I had mentioned the pandemic and how COVID-19 has affected so many people, but it's my understanding that it's just had a huge impact in the correctional system. Can you talk about how COVID has impacted correctional staff members and, and the system in general? Oh, Absolutely. You have multiple things that occurred during the pandemic. You had those officers that didn't necessarily want to get vaccinated. They were essentially being forced to get vaccinated. Then you had a number of officers who actually contracted COVID and were out for lengthy periods of time. Some were mildly ill. Others were severely ill. That required others to work overtime, mandatory overtime. Working in a prison, it's 24-7, okay? No holidays off, no vacations off. It's an operation that never shuts down. So a lot of people don't understand that you have to have X amount of officers on a shift to operate properly. And so you're requiring sometimes these individuals to work 16, 24 
plus hours without a break, and that's simply not healthy. That adds more to distress. That weakens your immune system. That could make you more susceptible to contracting COVID and other types of viruses. So it's not just worrying about your colleagues, but also you had to be prepared for prisoners contracting it. In prisons, unfortunately, social distancing is not a thing. Unfortunately, you're in a close proximity to maybe 75 to 90 people during your shift, depending on how the prison's set up. So it created a huge, huge issue for those who worked in corrections, simply because there's no way to escape from COVID. So... I think that caused a lot of issues right there with officers being out for extended periods of time. Or, as you know, for those who came in contact with someone with COVID, they would also have to quarantine for a period of time. So it led to more burnout probably than we've ever seen before. And this is only anecdotal evidence, but people leaving the profession to pursue other careers because thinking this is simply not for me. Yes, it's really the staffing concerns, I think, you know, among everything else. It's like staffing seemed like it was always a problem in corrections, and then COVID just really amplified it and made it that much worse. So I mentioned in the intro that you're actually writing a textbook on corrections. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why your book is unique, and then also why should people consider a career in corrections? I know we're talking about a lot of the negative aspects right now, but you know, it really can be a great career path. So can you talk a little bit about your book and those who are considering going into this field? Oh, absolutely. I think, unfortunately, if you look at the criminal justice system somewhat as a pie, you have your law enforcement, you have your courts, and then corrections for the most part. Historically or traditionally, people have viewed corrections as somewhat of a stepping stone onto other careers. We're trying to change that image as well and trying to change the culture of the profession, trying to make it something that's more attractive, I guess, for those who are considering careers in criminal justice and has that potential. What separates my book from the others is that I plan on focusing more on the practical side of it. I've been teaching criminal justice for 20 years now, corrections every single semester since that time. I've used a number of books and I've found some to have strengths and weaknesses just like you would find in any book. But I noticed that all of them, they didn't delve into more of what correctional officers experience, what administrators must do, and staff as well, programmatic staff. So this is going to kind of jump outside more of the theoretical and focus more on the practical side of things. So what is it like working with someone who's in for sexually violent crime, someone who wants to harm you? How do you deal with these things? So it's more practical in the sense that it prepares you for a career in corrections. And it isn't all doom and gloom. There is a lot of negativity associated with it. But the positive is, this is what to expect. And when you expect something, when you anticipate these things down the road, you're better prepared to deal with those issues as they occur. I learned through trial and error, unfortunately. <laughs> and I think a lot of individuals my age that went through corrections did the same thing. You kind of had to find your way dealing with some of these challenges. Fortunately for me, I was able to deal with them effectively, but many do not. So realizing that there's going to be issues with mandatory overtime, there's going to be challenges that you're going to face with certain inmates, and to be better prepared for that. 
also focusing on how to navigate the corrections field by dealing with frustrations, dealing with, I guess you could say, when people explode and you see these videos on social media of people who obviously lost their cool and excessive force then is the end result. What I'm trying to do is implement some of my research and my firsthand experience into this is how you can control your emotions, which I think is incredibly important, and how to separate what you're dealing with during the day. So when you go home, you're with your home life. And when you're at work, you're in your work life. Separating the two is important. So it's essentially input from myself, but also corrections professionals across the US that I'm having their input as well as to what's needed to make this a better corrections course. Because honestly, the way the course is set up now that I teach is the same way it was when I was a student back in 1985 taking corrections. I'm hoping to change all that. So this book is going to be more practical, realistic, and definitely useful than all the other textbooks out there. Well, that's incredible, Mike, that you can share your experiences, sort of lessons learned through your career. But also, more importantly, this is really an opportunity for you to kind of shape the next generation of correctional officers. Like you said, shift their mindsets, prepare them for this career field more than perhaps you were prepared. I've talked to a lot of folks who are correctional officers and looking back on it, they had no idea what they were walking into and what to expect. So I think that's just so important, like you said, to prepare them for this career. Talking about that next generation, are you hopeful about what they can bring to this? When I think of mental health, I just think how much more open younger people are talking about mental health than perhaps older folks. But do you have a similar belief that you have a lot of hope for the next generation of officers? Oh, no doubt about that. I do believe that you're seeing a more tolerant, younger type of population, a group that's more accepting of these issues, that they're acknowledging them, that it's not something like hidden, the elephant in a the room. They see the elephant, they're acknowledging the elephant, and they're dealing with it. So I do definitely see the difference in the generations on how that's being dealt with. However, we still got to change like the culture of corrections. There's still that distrust of people and others that work in corrections. There's still the thought that even though we have these policies and programs that are designed to help us when we're feeling stressed or burned out, but there's still that thought in the back of their head. It's just perception, of course, but based on the fact that, well, maybe this is going to be held against me down the road. So kind of getting over that. And then just in general, the profession is predominantly male. Males have a tendency not to talk about their feelings. I know that's hard to believe. And so that's part of the issue as well. So you kind of have that double-edged sword that we have to get in there and get them to change. Those entering the profession now are more receptive to those changes and are more likely to be successful in this profession than those that have kind of been in the profession for your 20, 30 year people. So I definitely feel hopeful that we're gonna see a lot of positive changes as people retire and new ones kind of come in and take their place. 
And something else you touched on, but I know is another passion of yours, is talking about leadership style, especially in the correctional setting. Can you just talk about where you think that needs to go in terms of adapting new leadership styles? You kind of mentioned how it's fairly authoritative and it's maybe not as embracing of all, you know, levels of staff. So can you just talk about your hope for the leaders of corrections? Absolutely. I focused on transformational leadership, I think, since I was a doctoral student. It's just something that I was drawn to when I first researched it, never heard of it before, but realized that my personality, my thoughts, my philosophy kind of align better with transformational leadership. To me, it works. The research is now supporting that it works. It worked in the business field. Then you have the back end of now the National Institute of Corrections, National Institute of Justice, all saying that transformational leadership is the way to go. So my experience was, like you mentioned before, that kind of authoritative, quasi-military approach, more punitive than helpful. So transformational leadership is essentially the polar opposite of that. It's coaching, it's mentoring, it's kind of lessons learned. How could you have done this better? But keep in mind that it's not, I guess you could say, patting people on the back and kind of that whole give everyone a trophy type of mentality. It has more to do with coaching them and helping them get through it rather than the threats of, well, if you can't handle the job, go look for another job. I've heard that before personally myself. (laughs) And that to me doesn't motivate me to do more. So transformational leadership also motivates and inspires people to do more. They feel more valued in their place of employment. And this is something that has been shown to be highly effective. So why aren't we doing it? So I'm definitely a proponent of transformational leadership. I think everything about it is perfect. I think it works with people. People tend to do more when they feel valued and respected. I mean, think about it. The reason why most people leave their places of employment have to do with dissatisfaction with their employer. So if you can change all that, like we started out in the beginning, most aren't leaving corrections because of working with criminal offenders, but having to do more with the organizational and the administrative side of things that are more frustrating than working with the offenders. That's great. I think it actually leaves me with a lot of hope based on our conversation. Like it seems like we know all the pieces that need to be put into place. It's just a matter of getting the right people to understand the issues that exist and then putting in place some of these changes to change the culture, give staff more both resources and, you know, all the things that people need to be happy in their job from job satisfaction to, frankly, safety and security and working tolerable hours and all of those things. So I think it's really exciting. I'm really excited for you. I think you're on such a great path here with such an important topic. And I know that you're very passionate about it. So I'm excited to see how this testimony goes and, and where we can go from here. So any other thoughts or things we didn't touch on that you want the listeners to know about? No, I think um, when I started this whole, I guess you could say journey, it was just me in my own research interests. But now it's kind of blossomed to where I've reached out to others within the U.S. that I guess you could call corrections experts or corrections gurus. And that has now since spread to those internationally. So we've become 
somewhat of a, a team. And that's what I love about this. And we're all tackling this together. So this continues to spread outward. And I like that, you know, meeting with like-minded people and we're all on the same page, sending the same message. So that's really important to me showing that, you know, this isn't just me, Mike Patero on a one man journey trying to make change. This is, you know, individuals from all over the U.S. and abroad that are all on the same path, the same journey who want to create these changes. So I think we're going to be incredibly successful. I honestly think that the testimonies that we're going to provide are going to be very powerful. And I definitely think that you're going to see some positive change come out of it. I'm 100 percent confident in that because we have a great group of people with strong messages to tell, strong stories to tell, that I think it's going to be very powerful. Excellent. Well, congratulations to you. Good luck with the book and the testimony, and we're behind you all the way. So great work. Thank you. Mike, thank you so much for your time today. I think just talking about mental health issues among correctional officers is just so important. So thank you for all your work. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today. Be well and stay safe. Thank you, Alicia. For more information about our university, visit us at amuonline.com. Thank you for listening. AMU, American Military University.